All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest, somebody I've done four interviews with that can be found on my podcast or YouTube channel. His name is Jason Horsley, H-O-R-S-L-E-Y. And he has a website titled Autoculture. It's www.auticulture.com. A lot of great information there, particularly his books as well. I mean, his interviews, I've done these uh, great interviews. I suggest people go check them out uh, on his books. I think that the first one we did was Dark Oasis, which was about his uh, experiences with um, kind of a guru in Canada. Uh, it's a self-made Messiah unveiled. Then we did Prisoner of Infinity, Social Engineering, UFOs, and the Psychology of Fragmentation, which uh, has a lot of excellent insights into the global UFO phenomenon and kind of modern culture as well. Then uh, we did Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism, and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse, which kind of has a little bit of overlap actually on the subject we're going to talk about tonight. And also seen and not seen Confessions of a Movie Autist. But on tonight's show, we're going to talk about a book that he has published. The actual publication date will be October 31st, 2020. Uh, so we're, we're definitely ahead of the curve on this one. But uh, you can get a hard copy from his website. And I've read the book. In detail, I took copious notes. The title of the book is 16 Maps of Hell, The Unraveling of Hollywood Superculture with a Rough Draft of the Exit. Again, Jason Horsley, H-O-R-S-L-E-Y. Again, to be published next month on the 31st. So we're going to cover uh, some of it here. It's a very detailed analytical book. The coverage of an audio would take probably hours, but uh, we're going to try to cover some of the more salient points here. So Jason Horsley, are you there? Yeah, here I am, Bill. Thanks. So awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, thanks for agreeing to the interview. It's great to be with you again. And I'm delighted that uh, you're here. I really enjoyed the book. So for people maybe who haven't heard of you in the past or any of the interviews I've done with you, I mean, I saw you on Sean Atwood, too. That was a great interview very recently. Uh, Sean Atwood's a known activist researcher. You can see that interview as well. But can you just tell people a little bit about your background and maybe talk a little bit about kind of your corpus of works and what led you to this excellent book, 16 Maps of Hell. Well, there's a number of uh, different pursuits that I've been engaged with for a very long time. Um, one of them is movies. Like I've been under the enchantment, the spell of Hollywood since I was an adolescent or even earlier. And I was actually quite determined to, make a successful career as a filmmaker so that was one thing that um was driving me from from early age um but at a certain point it was taken over by a kind of spiritual ennui or a sense of growing alienation with society and culture and uh I, so i became you know a very dedicated seeker of the truth you might say if that's not a bit too pretentious but I mean I was really trying to get to the bottom of something let's put it that way from from very early on really and um, writing was a tool that I developed quite young so I started writing seriously or you know, creatively for myself for my own exploration very young probably about 12 or 13 and um spent a lot of time traveling as well 
you've been to Mexico, uh, Central America, among other places. I think you've spent time in Morocco as well. So you've been to some pretty exotic, at least maybe 20 or 30 years ago, more exotic than your standard kind of vacation spot. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, it was, as you know, Bill, I inherited a lot of money when I was 18 and I even knew well before that, like when I was 14 or 15, because of my older sister, uh, siblings, I knew I was going to inherit. So I had a very unconventional background in that regard. I never considered needing to have a career. I never really thought about going to university. I was just waiting to get that money so I could hit the road. And that's what I did. Like at 17, even I traveled around Europe. Uh, At 20, I moved to New York, uh, drove across the country to Hollywood. Then at 22, I moved to Mexico after I read Carlos Castaneda. And then the whole bottom fell out at the age of 24 when I suffered severe heartbreak and just decided to get rid of everything. I got rid of my inheritance and I went off to Morocco with with just a few books and a few pounds in my pocket. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, a really, of a long process of just seeking. Um, I mean, what I, how I would sum up my work is, is I'm, I've been trying to deprogram myself from what I have come to understand more and more of the cultural indoctrination that was inflicted upon me psychologically. And since I turned 40, my interest become more and more in the, uh, the traumatic aspects of the culture. And so there were 20 years prior to that where I was researching and writing a lot, not just about movies, because that was in a way more superficial interest, uh, but about UFOs and conspiracies and occultism. Those three subjects really fascinated me. And I I wasn't that skeptical for many years. Um, uh, As in, I was wanted to become a shaman. I wanted to identify as an alien abductee. I was really, I really um, took on a lot of those myths and stuff. And I even wrote books about them, but somewhere around the age of 40, I began to really question a lot of those beliefs. Um, And I, I use the term second matrix that I was trying to get free of this, my socially and cultured sense of reality. And I thought that these were the means to do so. I, exploring UFOs, exploring occultism, exploring the conspiratorial aspects of the world, that somehow that would lead to freedom. But I discovered after a certain point that it was like a second matrix. It was like a a, a more sophisticated level of deception in there. And part of discovering that, uh, or central to that, was recognizing the the centrality of trauma in my own life. So my recent books, all the ones that you and I have talked about, although they explore these these big picture global subjects, they center around the, the individual psychological question of trauma in my own life. And so my books really, and including the conversations I have about them, they're geared more and more towards a healing of some deep psychological schism in my psyche by becoming more conscious of it. Right. And so- and I mean, I think those themes are, I mean, they're clear there in your most recent books and also kind of your quest and talking to gurus and things like that, particularly this Oshana, Dave Oshana, who you currently uh, follow. But uh, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're, Hollywood and the modern culture has definitely had an impact on you from a very early age. Like 
And I think that it's, it provides insight into how this culture has affected everybody. So their own personal yeah. accounts are very insightful. Yeah, well, it's, and they're, they're all sort of consistent. I mean, that's the thing, sorting the seeds of my different interests. They're all consistent in terms of seeking some sort of guidance, or orientation, or higher power, uh, higher authority. So um, Dark Oasis, the first book we talked about, was about me, uh, you know, finding what I thought was a guru that would show me the way to the truth and actually getting deceived, finding that I'd been deceived. Um, but the instinct was still sound. So, you know, my current work, Dave Oshana, is much more like a collaboration. And um, I would say that the uh, the early programming of Hollywood, and this is one of the things that I do explore in 60 Maps of Hell and also in Seen and Not Seen, um, is like a counterfeit for that. It's like we have, I had this yearning in my soul to connect to transcendental truth, um, to find positive role models that would guide me. And uh, I didn't have any in my, you know, my environment, uh, no human beings. And so I looked to the culture naturally enough. And I, and I was, I took what I was handed, you know, these counterfeit role models. So for me, Elvis Presley, Clint Eastwood, David Bowie. And then as I grew up, it became more sophisticated. Carlos Castaneda, Alistair Crowley, Whitley Strieber, and so on. So there's, there is a consistent thing, but it's just getting further and further away from the counterfeit uh, and closer to the real is the trajectory. Right. And also the comic book heroes too, that, uh, you know, collecting comic books, I think is a very common, at least for boys, a common past where you're identifying with these characters and, and you can kind of see that. And I think in your book, you explicate that very well, how this kind of, uh, how people are relating to these huge movies, like, Avengers is what the largest grossing movie ever. It's billy two billion dollars or something like that, or over two billion dollars. So, yeah, well, I was surprised I ended up writing about superheroes and sixty maps of hell because it's mostly, as you know, it's an attempt to deconstruct Hollywood and what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood and, and how these movies are delivery devices for this toxic ideology of the superculture, as I call it, these these cryptocratic ruling elite. And uh, so I well i just didn't expect to be writing about superheroes but somehow it naturally evolved in terms of you know what's coming out of hollywood now the the main product is this this tentpole franchise industry that spliced disney lucasfilm and marvel comics and it's all about these empowerment revenge fantasies the avengers um that are infantile i mean i, I grew up with that stuff and it was quite marginal when I grew up and now the whole world is worshiping at the altar of Spider-Man and Iron Man. Yeah. And I think an interesting fact you point out is that it turns out the heroes are more violent than the, the nemesis is there's more actions of violence by uh, these idols, whether it's Tony Stark or Thor or any of these other characters. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Well, it's the, the defining, um, quality of virtue really is power and how is power expressed or proven is through you know violence that that equation has somehow become unquestioned in our society that 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 real power depends on the use of violence and so if you're going to be a hero you you have to be tougher stronger meaner than the bad guy 
Right. And I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. The, and in that, in that chapter, you title it the masters of the universe. It's like you even bring in Epstein and the, the, the Superman is the hero. And it's still kind of this kind of yearning in the human condition that I think is in this relationship. You do draw out the people identify with these characters in Hollywood. And uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a, I mean, we're jumping in the deep end here now, but that chapter, there's such a weird convergence of things that we would perhaps never imagine would converge. So yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, we know the child sex trafficker, um, was also in scientific circle. You know, he was he was well positioned and he put, gave a lot of money or channeled a lot of money, presumably came from South sex trafficking into these like MIT and the Edge Foundation, these different scientific or scientistic foundations. And he himself believed in genetic engineering and engineering superpowers, I seem to believe anyway. Yes, yeah, um, and then uh, another element in there is the central to book that Masters of the Universe, of course, is a movie about superheroes. I, I'm not familiar with it really because it's not Marvel, but that Gary Goddard, one of the creators of that, franchise um was 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 a sex abusing hollywood player and and one of the ways that he lured his victims was because he was the guy behind masters of the universe and these kids grew up on that no that's my favorite movie of course i'll go back to your hotel room with you similar with smallville and allison mack and the next sim cult i don't know how to pronounce it but that cult nexium yeah yeah nexium yeah keith ranieri keith ranieri yeah, yeah. So Alison Mack was a star of Smallville, which of course is a TV show about Superman, and uh, and she was uh, procuring children for that cult, and of course that would give her the kind of um, appeal. You know, she would she would be able to lure children more effectively because she's a movie star that they already recognize. So I mean, things like this, they're they're tips of this iceberg where something is really not at all what it appears to be. It's more of a a, a ruse and a, a, a very cunningly designed um, dis- deception in order to, uh, it's like a farm really, it's harvesting, you know, psychic right. energy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's actually a very uh, salient theme that's within your whole book is that this kind of harvesting, uh, this dynamic where you're taking the energy of these people and uh, all these different people are doing it, you know, and you talk about, this kind of idea of parasociality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's, I mean, there's a number of terms in that book. And initially, I had, each chapter had had a sort of subheading in terms of what the theme was uh, based on some academic terminology that I discovered. In the end, I threw that out because I didn't want it to be too, you know, academic or intellectually top-heavy in that way. But it was striking to me that I discovered many of these different sort of models for understanding society and that uh, they were useful as lenses to look at our culture. And one of them was, one of them was narrative transportation, which maybe we can get to. And another one was parasocial relations. Again, terms that I'd never heard of, but of course we know what paranormal means. Um, This is parasocial as in it's beyond the ordinary social interaction. And it relates to the relationship, quote-unquote relationship we have with celebrities which of course is one-sided as in we feel we know all about them of course we don't really but we've got this idea about them and we've got these very strong feelings towards them but they're totally oblivious to 
our even our existence um and yet at the same time a celebrity depends on those parasocial relationships with the audience because that's that's the that feeds them i mean literally the money of the tickets that are bought but even the loving attention at some subtler level um is is maintaining the power of that celebrity so it is a two-way thing but it's right it's kind of like the fame dynamic where they want the attention and everything but i mean i've had definitely had parasocial relationships with people who either celebrities or just like well-known figures people who share information i mean they wouldn't know me from adam like i'm listening to him an hour a day or something uh so it's definitely that's an interesting dynamic but it also shows this kind of yearning within the the viewer or the audience for this kind of relationship that really isn't ever really fulfilled. Would you say, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's what I explore in seen and not seen. And then I, I pick up in a way where I left off with seen and not seen. I pick it up with 60 maps of hell in terms of there's a saying in the psychotherapeutic circles, which is your teeth match my wound, which is to do with how, uh, traumatized people attract people who are traumatized in similar ways although and it may be complementary it can be a healthy thing but it can also as we know be very unhealthy in terms of uh you know uh, people who've been abused as children attracting abusive partners as adults and re- re- repeating or reenacting the abuse patterns that's clearly not a healthy situation although it, it can lead to a resolution but often it doesn't and so i would say that the hollywood thing and even the celebrity thing and this whole parasocial aspect to reality it relates to that in in the the things we didn't get as children or the things we got that were really we didn't need you know if it was abuse or toxic kind of you know incestuous uh, interference let's say um are the things that we're we're looking for as adults either to uh, unconsciously repeat that or simply to to fill a hold or a hole or meet a need that wasn't met. And so there's something about uh, the allure of movie stars. I mean, for me, I, like I was a fan of Clint Eastwood from the from the moment I saw him. Pretty much, it took a few uh, half an hour or halfway through Where Eagles Dare before I really like that. Okay, now I know that's Clint Eastwood. And I think I'm in love kind of thing. And by the end of it, I, without being, there was nothing homosexual about it, but I was had a real big man crush on Clint Eastwood. And, and that took me, you know, through in my twenties and even to this day, I'll still get a thrill when I see him. But it wasn't until I was 40 that I noticed actually that Clint Eastwood in certain ways resembled my father, tall, thin, a big wide uh, grin uh, kind of, brown hair and a lot, a lot quite a few similarities and uh, my father was very absent you know I really did long for the father that I never had and uh, at some level even though Clint Eastwood and my father in many ways they were, they were completely unalike really but just the physical resemblance uh, combined with the qualities that Clint Eastwood had that I would say that my father didn't have but I wished he had had as in a strong, clear, decisive man who protects the weak, let's say. He he wasn't there for me like that. Huh? No, you're muted. I was muted, sorry. But yeah. where Eagles Dare, he's like this tall enforcer 
he just blows people away during the whole movie. It's true. So, he doesn't do much protection. Yeah. No. Well, in some ways he does, right? He's trying to get the operation completed. It's a great movie for those who haven't seen it. Uh, love it, Where Eagles Dare. Ironically, yeah. I mean, this is part of the split that I've been trying to hear with 60 Maps Hell is that, you know, I love those these movies and to some extent I still do. Uh, but the more aware I become of how they're offering some sort of snake oil really for my psychic um you know woundedness and they're not they're, they're not healing they're not resolving and in fact they're exploiting you imagine imagine a dodgy psychotherapist who really isn't interested in healing anyone but just interested in maybe putting you in a hypnotic trance so he can sexually abuse you uh, it's a terrible analogy i mean I, I hope it hasn't happened to anyone because it might be triggering but i mean that's a a pretty good metaphor for what Hollywood is. It, yeah. it promises to offer relief, and it sort of does. But while we're in this trance, we're being exploited and colonized and polluted by very, you know, toxic ideological propaganda and and worse than propaganda. I mean, something even more insidious than propaganda. No, it's very true because you're in a totally passive state, darkened environment. It's. I mean, you liken and you make these. You talk about the what the sleeper room and you and Cameron and all these mind control, and then you go to an, a theater. You're really putting yourself in the time before AT and T fiber internet. What? What are you doing in me dungeon? It's the only place where the bloody Wi-Fi works. Oh, and you don't mind the spiders? Spiders? What spiders? Oh no, they're everywhere! Oh! In the time after AT&T Fiber Internet. It's nice having fast, reliable Wi-Fi in the whole house. For sure. The dawn of a better internet era with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Check eligibility at att.com slash getfiber. AT&T smart Wi-Fi extenders may be required. Sold separately. Restrictions apply. ...in a very passive environment. Uh, somewhat similar, to, I mean, you're not getting drugged out, but somewhat similar to some of these mind control things. Yeah, well, that, I mean, it was to, to bring in specific examples, the William Friedkin, you know, who made The Exorcist and The French Connection, particularly The Exorcist, obviously, was a hugely influential, hugely popular movie. In many ways, it's the first blockbuster before Jaws. And <clears throat> anyone who's seen it, maybe even those who don't know, it's an incredibly shocking movie i mean there's a 12 year old girl who's masturbating with a crucifix and then shoving her mother's face into her bloody vagina and screaming your mother sucks cocks in hell and you know just really it was even by today's standard it, it would be hard to imagine that getting an r rating but somehow it did back then and so parents were taking their kids to it. It was this huge movie and people were having epileptic fits while they were watching it and the Warner Brothers was being sued, and you know, I'm not saying it was it, that aspect was was quite hidden, but it was there. Mostly, it was just this huge phenomenon. And um, reading about Friedkin, uh, that he, well, the things he described in his uh, in his autobiography, that uh, he quotes Jolyon West, one of the key players in the MK Ultra program. Um, this idea of a safe darkness that the movie theater is a safe darkness as you say where you'll enter into this trance his own experiences of being traumatized as a child when his mother took him to the the, the movies for the first time and the terror he he went into and how somehow that instilled in him the desire to then pass on that trauma to others in a classic sort of uh, abuse cycle that 
it's very it was very odd to me the way that Friedkin provided all of these clues. You know, Jolly yeah. West is the first person he mentions in his memoir, and he he talks about him as his almost like a mentor. But of course, he's not saying. And then, and then there's the whole thing. You, you read the book. I don't want to confuse readers too much, but the Paul Bates and Bag murders. Uh, there seems to be a lot of ties there, not just to Friedkin, who made the movie Cruising about related to these murders, but also Jolly and West and what was going on there. So there's a lot of clues there that I was uncovering. And you know, to cut to the chase, the too long don't read version is is that. Um, MK Ultra, as it's become, it's become folklore now and even part of Hollywood folklore, ironically, but we think of it as something that happens in a laboratory or a military installation. But actually, I think closer to the truth, it's, it's a methodology that has certain principles and tools, and they don't all have to involve electrodes and a laboratory-controlled environment and military personnel. They can be replicated on a mass scale, and in fact, certainly looking at Friedkin and The Exorcist as a case study, the history behind it, but also the film itself and the results of it, it does look like a widespread um, psychological operation that is like mind control light. And and because we've grown up in that culture, uh, we're so uh, inundated and desensitized that we don't even really notice and we don't even think about how strange it is that we would pay money to be terrorized. You know, that, oh, it that is interesting. question that. Right, so, like you're going knowing you're going to be terrorized. You're going to be put into a heightened state. Look at the whole horror industry that's yeah. been around. And, and you have to put The Exorcist in part of that horror industry. But it's interesting, you include in your book that the uh, producer had to settle these suits when people sued them and said, were we being subjected to subliminal uh, encoding or something because there was subliminal stuff in The Exorcist? It's pretty incredible. Probably. Yeah, well, he, he, he used, or they, I should say, because I, I think one of the things that has to be questioned when we start looking under the surface is that this idea of the auteur and this film genius who's doing it all is, I mean, that was never really a true notion anyway, but certainly when you, when you look at the possibility that somebody like Freakin is part of a larger psychological operation, then clearly he's not the only one calling the shots. Um, he has certain skills, um, but he's also following instructions and, and, a, and a template, I would say. Um, and yeah, so the idea of using subliminals for the exorcist, I mean, I think I knew about that maybe as an you know as a teenager like it wasn't a big secret but to me the context always was freaking is a filmmaker and he's trying to make a scary movie so he put these flashing images in he put weird sounds of i can't remember what they were now but uh like babies crying i forgot what it was yeah i was going to say rabbits being killed i I know that was at waco they did that waco so i might be getting things but anyway things that are too subtle for the conscious mind to hear but they're they're going to make the overall impact much greater and more profound and more disturbing. Well, yeah, I, I just kind of used to think about that in terms of, well, he's a horror filmmaker. He's just trying to make it effective as a horror movie. And, and But the two things are perfectly compatible as a thing. And what I tried to look at with 16 Maps of Hell is there's a, there's a much older tradition to terrorizing people with spectacle 
than Hollywood. And so it's not as though Hollywood was just this industry that came up and then it discovered, oh, horror is a way to terrify people. It seems it's more the other way around that, well, terror tactics uh, is, a, is, is a necessary means for, for um, um, maintenance of hierarchical control in a society. And uh, spectacle is one of the central ways to inflict horror on people and even get them to actually submit to it as entertainment. Uh, and so then Hollywood would naturally be developed as an instrument of that. Right. Kind of and age. you mentioned that book. It was a really fascinating book. What I didn't read it, but it was the Hayden book, Power of Ritual in Prehistory, Secret Societies, Origins of Social Complexity. You reference that, and it's it's very true. Even without Hollywood, they're definitely trying to have these priest doctors and stuff or scaring people. It's like a secret society. They keep people out. Uh, they have their own kind of bells and whistles, so to speak. Maybe Hollywood has the same thing, their own kind of explosions to get things across. Yeah, well, it has this double purpose that, I mean, I hadn't discovered that book until shortly before writing Sixty Mountain Style, so I was incorporating it kind of last minute, but the parallels were so strong. And one of the parallels is that, yeah, the secret society rituals, um, uh, some of them were public. So the thing about a secret society is that the society itself isn't secret, but it has secret rituals and practices and, and privileges. Um, but the society itself has to some, be somewhat public in order to recruit, um, partly. I mean, there are probably other reasons too. And one of the ways that they would recruit traditionally would be by putting on these spectacles and demonstrating their power and so they, they would be terrifying a community, but in a way that was somewhat benign, as in the people were aware it was a performance. There were ways they would actually terrify, terrorize them, of course, as well. But that would be, you know, that would be you know, somewhat different. Um, and uh, the, so it would have this double effect that a lot of people would just be awed by the power and intimidated and so kept in line okay don't mess with those guys we could see how powerful they are because a, a big part of it would be showing off their powers by maybe cutting off a member's head and then putting it back on however they did the trickery assuming it wasn't actually supernatural it could have been a combination so yeah a large proportion would just be terrified and kind of intimidated and awed and put in a worshipful position but a smaller portion would would aspire to join the secret right. society. And so then those people would then uh, be potential recruits. And I think you see something similar with Hollywood is that, you know, the majority of us just kind of worship at the altar of Hollywood, but a certain percentage want to join the society. They want to make it in Hollywood. And I think in similar ways, um, this is part of what makes the secret society secret, uh, Number one, the privileges aren't known, but they're, they're hinted at. That's certainly part of the performance. You let people know what kind of privileges you or powers you will have bestowed upon you if you make it into the society. That's very central. But the the rich, the uh, the rites of passage, the things you have to do or give up to to join, uh, are much more secret. And you would only find those out by showing up, and you know, basically, you've got right. to pass through the various levels of grades and you know the close 
you get to real induction, the more you have to sacrifice, let's say. It does uh, seem as though something similar. Is oh, I think it's Hollywood. totally analogous. I think that Hollywood as, an, as a secret society, you liken it to in the book, but also the initiation uh, is a step type thing. Like how far up the ladder are you going to go? Either for women or men, very different. And you say like, I mean, it's pretty clear these guys are putting out fake narratives, whether it's Polanski or uh, what was the other producer? Um, but well, a lot David of these guys, Fincher, yeah, Fincher, yeah, almost all of them, Weinstein, all these guys are putting out the, but they, you can see that they have this benefit. So like the, the dream of it is, but then the abusive, there's a lot of sexual license. There's a lot of privileges. And if you're in and you, I mean, you even mentioned in your book, they almost never tell the inside stories. They're leaked through crazy days and nights or something like that. But they all really keep their mouth shut about very rarely do they ever say anything about somebody like Kevin Spacey or some of the other type of really super abusive relationships. But uh, I think Hollywood is secret society is uh, very apt, very apropos, apropos. Mm. I think, I mean, it's, one of the first points I make in the book is that we know that Hollywood is a dream factory and that it makes up fictions to entertain us. But and we're not quite so aware, although partially aware, that there's a second layer to that, which is the lives of the celebrities themselves and the way that the Hollywood industry functions, that that's also fictionalized. Like, I mean, I grew up reading... Uh, film magazines that had all these on-set reports, you know, behind the scenes. And I've read countless books about behind the scenes of Hollywood. And, um, of course, they, you know, they, they have scandal in them. They've got gossip. They've got, they're going to be salacious because that's part of the entertainment value. But essentially, they create the picture that Hollywood's just, you know, a, an industry, a town with lots of talented people. And yes, there's a lot of ego, but basically people work together and they, they're all, they're dedicated to the craft and they want to make art. And, you know, there's, there's a more or less consistent narrative. Even if you look at uh, Peter Biskin's Easy Rider Raging Bulls, which I cite at the very start of the book, because it was, it was a book I read a lot. And to me, I was so fascinated in that world. Even a book like that, it does present those directors from the 70s as seriously fucked up on drugs and all the rest of it. But it still maintains the myth that Hollywood is this hotbed of talent and exciting energy and creative energy. Um, and the, the abuse, I mean, there isn't really any abuse in Peter Biskin's book, actually. Uh, but it, even the hint of it, it's just, okay, well, it's just, it's there yeah there's a bit of it going on but it's it's really so decentralized um and uh it, it it's not that clearly that picture isn't consistent with what starts to come out in recent years i mean jimmy savile in the uk harvey weinstein jeffrey epstein bill cosby i mean we could make a list now yeah. there's these different figures yeah right? incredible abusers too you know like these guys had 50, 100. Savile was probably into the thousands, don't you think? And they're powerful people. They're influential people, well-connected. With Jimmy Savile, it was well-known uh, that everybody knew, or it was, I mean, how do you phrase that? I mean, later on, after it came out, people started acknowledging or admitting, yeah, we all knew that kind of thing. And then you go back on YouTube and you find 
you know, Johnny Rotten talking about it in the 70s or whatever it was. So this open secret thing. Um, so Epstein, Epstein was heavily, heavily uh, in networked in Hollywood. So he wasn't just in science or anything. But yeah. He was involved in honest plane flights. They have all these people, Spacey. It's just never mentioned. They all keep it quiet. It's just like your book says, you know, it's a secret society. They're not telling the totality. But you can tell some of these guys took their weekends at Little St. James, you know. Uh, I think it was Bill Maher who said, I'm on a flight to Little St. James and I'll be having, he didn't say this exactly, but he said, I'll be having sex with a Russian prostitute in six hours. So they're, they're living in a world that's very different than the world of their fans, let's say. I mean, the people who are maintaining their power, the, the general public, who to a large extent are providing the means for them to maintain their world. Let's say not just paying taxes, but paying for the tickets and you know the Netflix subscription and all the rest of it, right? right. We, the people, the public, um, ha- have no idea really, except now there's hints here and there, but still very hard for us to really grasp the nature of the world that these people move in. And part central to what they, they seem to be doing here with our complicity and our manufactured consent is they're creating a false narrative constantly. That's why I say it's, it's, it's quite meta because we know that Hollywood is this dream factory which is all about creating fake narratives, getting us to suspend disbelief. But we do that consciously as in... You know, we pay to see a movie and nobody really thinks that what we see on the screen really happened. But at the deeper level, there's like a whole um, aspect of our society that is being narrated by these same individuals, it seems to me. Uh, and and that's much, much, much harder to see through. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, like, uh, depending upon what gets greenlit what narratives they want to include in these films. Uh, yeah, you're definitely being led along. It's pretty incredible that, uh, and even though, I mean, you talk about your book, it's not just the narrative that we're subjected to. They're all lying too. Like you talk about, you reference Manson and the whole Manson event. Every, it's clear to me, everybody around that whole Manson event is lying. It's, they're not telling the truth. And then you included a quote from Joe Esteraz saying, even when he's lying, he's telling the truth about Robert Evans, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I find it very um, disturbing and disorienting, this, what you're describing there. And I include that in the book. Like at a certain point, I, after looking at, for pages and pages of the con- inconsistencies around the Polanski, Sharon Tate, Manson, you know, what happened there, there's this official version, and not just Bugliosi and Helter Skelter, but what everybody in Hollywood was saying at the time, pretty much everybody, was there's a few people who did say things that didn't fit, and that mostly got marginalized. And then there's the, you know, the mainstream press, which was saying things that it seemed, turns out were probably closer to the truth, but were being roundly denied and derided by people like Polanski and Evans as, as totally irresponsible and slander and all the rest of it. And um, there's, a, there's a very consistent assertion uh, by these central players that this is the way it was. And I, you know, I grew up reading that stuff. And I grew up thinking that Polanski was this great filmmaker, a very charismatic figure. I personally liked him. I, I believed him. 
it's like if you have a parent who lies to you your whole life, uh, you, it's just really, really hard to actually get your head around the fact that they might be lying because they've actually shaped the way that you perceive reality. So I think something like this is going on with Hollywood, for me at least, that it's very hard for me to believe that people could lie that consistently and that uh, insistently and that um, in, in such an organized way. Right. But on the other hand, if they're, if they're criminals and they're covering up crimes, what else would they do is the thing. I mean, that's, of course, their livelihood depends on maintaining the fiction. Right. And Polanski was so involved with this stuff. I mean, there's so many different stories, whether you even go through the O'Neill book, Chaos, yeah. of him filming people and orgying and all kinds of drugs and sketchy things happening. And just stories of famous people going through that house on Cielo Drive. And then he gets busted in, um, I think it was at Jack Nicholson's house, right? Wasn't he taking pictures? Of her? Yeah, Polanski was ra- raping the girl. Then he fled. And one of the interesting things in your book that I didn't know is that he's abusing girls in France too. So this guy is an international abuser. Like there's all these French women who came forward and said they endured a bunch of abuse from Polanski. But uh, it's interesting how these guys' lives and uh, the, what they put on screen somewhat overlaps because you talk about just this kind of uh, the abusive, you know, scary kind of black magic stuff that Polanski puts through a lot of his a lot of his films, right? Well, one of the things that occurred to me while writing that book and that Chinatown was a kind of central text because Chinatown, of course, was Polanski's, considered his masterpiece. It has John Huston as Noah Cross and, and John Huston was a very shady character himself, was friends with George Hodel, possibly the Black Dahlia killer um, who raped his own daughter uh, and claimed that John Houston tried to rape her when she was very young. Uh, Polanski himself in Chinatown plays the Dimitriot with the knife who slashes Nicholson's nose open. Uh, this is, you know, five years after his wife was murdered with a knife. Um, the image on the Esquire magazine that is uh, now on the cover of 16 Maps of Hell with Polanski wielding a knife at the time that he was making Macbeth. So it was only two years after the killing of his wife uh he's he's playing on this uh reputation for the dark and the kind of associations that that has for us um so it's almost as though he's reveling in something there that on the other hand he's complaining that he's being mistreated by the press because they're not respecting his grief and how dare they accuse him of somehow being responsible for the crimes or there being any parallel between his movies and the crimes. Uh, he's, he's like having it both ways. And I think that the this first way where, where somebody like Polanski seems to be actually complicit in some way with the darkness... Um, what it occurred to me while working on this book is that, because we saw this with Jimmy Savile, that part of his modus operandi was to actually parade his iniquity, was to make jokes about it, was to not be secretive about it at all, but to portray it in such a way that only those who already knew what he was up to and were complicit with it would, would understand. 
like anyone else who's really moving in a totally different moral context would, would just assume, well, he must be joking because nobody would be guilty of those kind of things and then, and then brag about it. But weren't a bunch of Savile's uh, colleagues busted for pedophilia too or people that were in his circle? I thought there were a couple guys too. Oh, it was Gary Glitter, Gary Glitter, uh, Cliff Richard. I don't know how many were actually busts, but but sure. I mean, yes, this, it, this is the it's the social set uh, that I mean. One indication, uh, or how, how can I put this? Like, it, if if we if a person moves in a social set where certain behaviors are the norm then they would be used to just talking and joking about them because they're among buddies, right? And it's known. And it's possible that somebody like that would, would, would make mistakes, would let things slip if they weren't in the right environment. And if so, well, the way to kind of neutralize that uh, is to, uh, ha-ha, I was just kidding. But also, as I've talked about elsewhere, it can be a way to test the waters if you're interacting with somebody like get a sense of where they're at morally where they're at in terms of their own awareness of what's going on you make a joke if if they're in the know then they will respond in such a way that you realize if they're not they'll look a bit shocked and then you just emphasize oh no i was just joking kind of. right. so right. it's I'm a way to kind of gauge get the check the sea level and um, so what I what I began to speculate and hypothesize 16 Mounts of Hell is that actually movies that are being celebrated um, may, uh, that are made by criminals of one form or another, Godfather being another example, um, they may actually be a way for these criminals to brag about their crimes uh, and not be exposed as a result because it's, it's, it's art. Right. So they can reveal the things they're up to in the guise of fiction, have the satisfaction. It's kind of like narcissistic porn or something. They have the satisfaction of seeing their, their crimes glorified on the screen, rubbing the public's noses in it, getting awards for it. And nobody really suspects. In fact, it's the opposite. They think Polanski's a good guy. He's making a movie like Chinatown about the, the bad guys. Right. And, and, you know, that's, the artist kind of he's on that artistic level where he's making a movie exposing evil, but actually it's closer to uh, a deep complicity with it. Also with Rosemary's baby right. where um, there's some sort of satisfaction in creating an autobiographical account of his own criminal activities in such a way that he's not going to actually be uh, jeopardized by doing so. Right. I mean, at the end of Rosemary's baby, she gets turned and, you know, Satan is, she's going to do what she's told. So it's not like some kind of righteous ending in any way, shape or form. And uh, it's kind of like that kind of dark joke is in a lot. But if you look at the ninth gate, which was made with Depp in 1998, or 99, actually, that's just probably one of the most satanic movies I've ever seen. And then you see this weird overlap with him and Nicholson, because Nicholson, who's his girlfriend, John Houston's daughter, for years. I think they were Angelica Houston and Nicholson and Polanski, and you just see this kind of really dark, incestuous yeah. kind of group of people. It's uh, it's pretty scary. Mackenzie Phillips also was um, of the, the uh, Mamas and Papas, is it? Right, um, yeah. Uh, she was Nicholson's girlfriend. 
and uh, her John Phillips, her husband, sex had sex with his daughter. Yeah, but he had a relation. He had an incestuous, long-term relationship with her. It was freaking sick, like for yeah. five or ten years or something like that. Yeah, that is. Sorry, I got that wrong. Mackenzie Phillips yeah. was was John Phillips' daughter. Julia Phillips was uh, his his wife. His and, wife right? and Julia Phillips and um, Jack Nicholson were together. So yeah, there's right. definitely this quite tight-knit clique in Hollywood. Um, and it would seem as though they have a very different moral framework yeah. that they're moving in. Um, and yet they make movies that appeal to us and often do have, they're, they're not moralistic, as you're pointing out. They have right. to have this kind of um, amoral quality yeah. to them, but they still, they're works of art. And the gen our general assumption is that they're made by compassionate people with compassion for the characters and so on, because we wouldn't, they wouldn't appeal to us otherwise. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Cause if you could, you can look at Rosemary's baby as a, this kind of integration of somebody into Satanism. You can look at uh, Mia Farrow as this person being slowly indoctrinated into the cold at the very end, she turns, right? So she's yeah. resisting, 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 and Cassavetes' character is trying to turn her, and then she gets turned. And wasn't this, there something in your, in your book that uh, uh, Pharaoh was the one who introduced uh, Sharon Tate to occultism or something like that? Do you remember that? Yeah, I was just okay. thinking of that. Yeah. I can't remember who said it, though. Yeah, which, you know, gets kind of... I mean, then you mentioned Ronan Pharaoh, so you kind of see these, these same kind of people just kind of are still around even to this day throwing the Ronan Farrow book which you mentioned well of course Ronan Farrow is in the business of exposing a lot of this so who knows what what that is whether that's part of the agenda too and I suppose that's that's a deeper you know level of intrigue and worth questioning I think is that um you know exposing this stuff at a superficial level isn't necessarily going to get people to turn away from the screen. It may, it may even increase people's addictive fascination for it. Yeah, I had heard that same thing, that that's why that whole Michael Jackson, whatever Wonderland movie was actually made, is because they knew he was dead, so they just used it as... And it was actually financed by, uh, by Oprah, in part, and one of the reasons was like they knew they they could just throw this guy to the wolves and you know distract people from looking into even darker, deeper stuff associated with Hollywood. Well, I heard that Michael Jackson movies uh, music sales went up after leaving Neverland as well. Oh, interesting. So, interesting. Um, I would have thought yeah. differently. You would think so. Yeah. Um, see what else so so i mean and the, the other thing like the denials is like one of the interesting aspects of the books is is the the kind of velvet underground or the velvet mafia or the pink mafia in hollywood and the vigorous mm -hmm. denials of that but you can just see that played out so with so many all the way to singer and all these other characters yeah that chapter on the gay mafia was one that um well certainly back when i was looking for a publisher before I was dis disabused of that illusion that I would be able to find a publisher for this book. Um, I was, I was concerned about 
that chapter because it's just it's such a hot topic. Um, this idea there's a homosexual cabal in Hollywood that has a disproportionate amount of control. Um, but I mean, the evidence is there, and um, well, I mean, it's a complicated subject, but. But I think you mentioned you quoted somebody as saying like, "Which of the men are bisexual?" And like it was Rock Hudson or somebody else who said, uh, "You know, it's too long to list or something." So a lot of these, there's a, there's definitely like a sexual, definitely the latter or the casting couch works for men and women. Well, I think, um, I mean, I think as we explore in that chapter on the gay mafia is, is that actually homosexuality, particularly, you know, since the seventies, it's, it's, it can be a cover for something else uh, because as homosexual, you've got certain rights now and not just, equal rights you you've got more rights as homosexual protected as a minority um you know so any kind of criticism can be seen as persecution right. so that that that's certainly a way to you know get more freedom get more power get more privilege by identifying as homosexual and so that's my suspicion about the gay mafia is it's not really so much about a bunch of homosexuals who clique together and, and then wield power in Hollywood so much as a bunch of sexual predators in this case male and I don't think it's not restricted to male sexual predators but uh, who are probably um, well it's hard to really speculate what kind of sexuality they've got but I'd say it's a pathological kind of sexuality which is about predation and power wielding sexuality as a way to have power over others probably with a strong element of sadism in it yeah trauma possibly possibly. and and so that but that kind of sexuality is is quite uh, voracious i think um potentially it could also be impotent but let's say if it's on the voracious end of the spectrum um then it's going to be sort of indiscriminate in in a bad sense as in you know i'll fuck anything that moves to quote frank booth in blue velvet and uh, it would have a natural predilection for, for children because they're easier to victimize. Um, but I don't think it would discriminate between sexes, as in, uh, you know, it, it, would, it would probably find ways to get gratification through homosexual abuse as well as heterosexual. And then, so then it seems as though the identification of homosexual is, is cynical and manipulative. Interesting. Yeah, and I think that this is even, I mean, there's an even, even deeper area here, which is, um, you know, what what is a sexual identity anyway? I think that it's largely been something that's been manipulated for, for purposes of, se- of social engineering, you know, so-called identity politics. Uh, that it's been recognized that if you identify a certain way, you have leverage and power. If you identify another way, you don't. So it's a way to victimize on both ends, as in you can become more powerful if you identify this way, but also if you identify somebody that way, you can persecute them. That that dynamic of victimizing uh, is, has been throughout history. And I think homosexuality has just been one of the, the latest We've seen the way in which that's that form of identification has been manipulated. Um, it's like situa- uh, situational homosexuality. Yes, 
Exactly. It's, it's um, uh, opportunistic use of an identification. However, there is this thing which became central to 60 Maps of Hell, which is um, there is there is a kind of, it seems as though there's a kind of uh, deeply embedded hostility towards women in in the superculture. It's because it, even in these ancient secret societies, Brian Hayden talks about how a great deal of their rituals and their methods were directed towards the subjugation of women. And and I bring it up to date via the Surrealists and the Dadaists into you know Hitchcock and Polanski and Tarantino and torture porn uh, and once upon a time in Hollywood even Tarantino in his last film torturing women is is central to the Hollywood aesthetic. Interesting. And why do you think that is? What's the what's the prerogative? Well. Um, Don't you think it's about maintenance of power too? Like how many powerful female yeah. heads were there before me too? So, I mean, it's like, this well, it's, is your it's place. Not, it's not as simple as social power because of course there are part, women in positions of administrative power. There are many now, probably more than men even. Maybe not so much in Hollywood. I'm not sure if it's caught up in this way, but it's not. That's why I hesitated because it partly, because it's, it's really complicated, and I didn't. I certainly didn't want sixteen maps of hell to be another screed against misogyny, or you know, to be jumping aboard the Me Too bandwagon because I'm quite cynical or skeptical about that. I think that that's just another sort of social revenge um, drive, and I think it's misrepresenting the truth because I think women have enormous power in our society, primarily as mothers, mothers who shape male psyches. So the male who are the males who have been controlling our society themselves have been psychically shaped by women. So women have this second degree control over our culture that's totally unrecognized. So that's number one. Um, as far as the, this question about power, I think that it's true that men, uh, let's just keep it simple, men do want power. And uh, you know, there's a pathology of the power drive in men, a lot of them, all of them maybe, many of them, and uh, us, and uh, um, somehow central to this is power over women, including, because uh, there's a rage against women, but there's also a resentment of the power that women have that would go all the way back to uh, to infant life, because an infant child, a male one, uh, is powerless, and you know, it's totally dependent on his mother. So his, if his mother is... Um, abusing that power in whatever way, even just neglecting the child, not being there when it's needed, when she's needed, then this rage will build up in the child, the male child's psyche, and uh, eventually spill out. I mean, first of all, it will metastasize into a drive to be powerful, but somehow central to that drive for power is rage against mummy, rage against women, and resentment of the power of women because women do have a great power you know, as mothers, not just over their children, their infants, but in their bodies. I mean, women have the power to create life, which men don't have. So that I think there is a deep-seated resentment and rage against women in men, which is, what can you say? I mean, it is sourced in formative relationships with 
between children and mothers. So it's not as though women are, uh, you know, innocent in this equation either. Yeah, and it's interesting how much that that is informed in your book and in Hollywood too. So many of these guys are cross-dressers or even Polanski and stuff. You know, they're they're really investigating this kind of feminine aspect of their lives. I thought that was pretty pretty fascinating and that goes back to the shaman rituals as well like shamans why well, I, I bring that in in the last chapter don't i the illusion mysteries and these these initiates who castrated themselves and then dressed up as women and that was kind of the ultimate attainment of power uh, and now we have transgender of course so there's some weird theme that's been running through history and even prehistory which has to do with men trying to turn themselves into women in order to have ultimate power over everything. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's, I think that's one of the elements of your book too, is it just shows that Hollywood really is, it has like so many primal ideas that are expressed through people who operate it and uh, the films that they, they make that, uh, you know, it's uh, some of these same kind of issues go all the way back to, you know, his prehistory, history, Greeks, yeah. all Romans, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, the idea that Hollywood is just churning out entertaining product clearly needs re- rethinking. Uh, and, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the sort of the increasingly popularized notion that Hollywood is the center of, you know, secret society mind control, even though that's kind of my book's thesis, I would say that 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 interpretation really needs rethinking as well because it's well one thing it's too damn popular you know it's it's become a main a sort of a second mainstream view um whether it's you know vigilante citizen or i don't know what websites come to mind but there's an awful lot out there i'm sure you know i mean if you oh, type sure, in, yeah, yeah. type in Hollywood illuminati into youtube you're going to get a shitload of oh. videos it's actually probably is the mainstream. It's probably not even people are watching that more than anything, probably. Right. So, 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 what, what, what to make of that? Because it's to me that's not really helping us to get to grips with what's going on. Somehow, it's like the Hollywood version of, you know what I mean? I mean, they've created this fake narrative that Hollywood's this wonderful place with celebrities and talented artists. And we're starting to see through that. So it's almost as though they've had to come up with another fake version that's that's much closer to the reality, but it's they've still got control over the narrative. Interesting. Yeah, that's that makes what sense. Like to me. Makes sense. No, it does feels like that to me. I mean, I don't know if it's really any 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 of their kind of stuff has really changed with kind of the, some of the social upheaval and the investigating. They're still putting out occult stuff and I mean cuties just came out, which is Incredible, and you know which one? Other, Sorry, that one with the pedophilia on Netflix called Cutie. Oh uh, yeah, Cuties. Yeah, I didn't even need to watch the movie. I just saw the 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 trailer. I'm like, come yeah. on, man, this is bad. So I didn't even I didn't even watch the trailer because I just know already. And oh, uh, was well, one of the chapters in Sixty Mountains How I say that this is the cryptocracy's coming out party. Um. And I mean, this is, it's very speculative, but it's also based on observation that there seems to be um, a, a progression whereby 
I suppose it's desensitization, isn't it? To reveal a little bit of what's going on. And yes, people recoil in horror. But on the other hand, it's all entertainment. It's all kind of, because the medium is the message. They're receiving it through the same media that they're receiving their fictional entertainment. Right. Yeah, so they're not really yeah. having a deeper visceral sense of what's happening in their bodies. It's just staying in the mind. And so, yeah, there's a recall, oh my God, those sickos, those freaks. But even that kind of moral outrage sort of feeds the thing. You know, people like to feel outraged. And then there's a, I think there's a gradual desensitization where people just get less shocked because they've already seen it. And then it's so, uh, well, it's kind of, I suppose it's like, uh, you know, doing, doing, uh, I don't know, tough on the joint. Eventually, you're shooting heroin, kind of analogy that you, once you get used to the substance, then you you find that although you know it's bad for you, you actually really kind of like it. People do like they like the titillation. Of course, they do. Oh, for sure, don't you think? And including things. they like to feel. Uh-huh. They like to be horrified, but then feel virtuous as a response. Um, so I think there's something really insidious in that. And it's right there in, in this whole thing about pedophiles and pedophilia, which I address in the book. People are calling Jeffrey Epstein a pedophile, but I mean, and he probably was, but they're basing it on the fact that he was having sex with 13 or 14 year old girls. Now that isn't pedophilia. That's hebophilia. You know, pedophilia is children far worse it's far worse it's ridiculous to make these things equivalent but it's strategically effective if you want to normalize something because one thing is relatively natural if immoral i mean i'm just about can those two things be consistent i mean it's whatever it's it's it is biologically normal to have a sexual response to a 14 year old girl even if you're a 50 year old man there's there's nothing wrong with your biology if that happens you 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 do want to have the moral social psychological awareness to override that but to have the response is normal whereas to have a sexual response to an eight-year-old is you you know you're seriously damaged at that point so if you make them equivalent then you're actually um reducing the possibility for discerning when something really is a pathology and when it's just well something we need to be aware of and you know keep a close eye on um i and, mean the the thing is, is like the incest stuff i think you even wrote in your book it's more common than most people talk about there's stories in there like ryan o'neill and all this stuff man these guys yeah. are dur they're dark man it gets really dark and uh so it just may be just a microcosm in Hollywood of the larger macrocosm. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I, I think so. I mean, like who, who do we, who we look to for role models? We can't blame it all on the role models. Like if we choose really bad, dodgy role models, right. uh, we can't just blame them that they then led us astray because we did choose them. So if we chose them, yeah, okay, as manufactured consent, we were tricked. Like Kirk Douglas really isn't a heroic figure as a show in the book. He just played heroes on the screen. In real life, he's this murdering, raping psychopath. I don't know about murder, actually. I don't want to get sued. But he's a rapist and, you know, sociopath. So, okay, we didn't know that. Now, I didn't know that when Kirk Douglas was my second favorite movie star at the age of 13 kind of thing. But but nonetheless, um, 
you know, my own lack of discernment and my, more to the point, really, my own unconscious affinity with Kirk Douglas' energy is what, you know, drew me to him. So there, there is an innate affinity, just as there is between the abused and the abuser. There is an affinity between, you know, us as subjects who are worshipping these false idols and, and the, the figures that we're worshipping as well. There's something in us. And most, most of us, if we're honest, if we had the opportunity to attain that much power, we would take it and we would abuse it as well. You know, we, we could say there, but for the grace of God, go we all. Like I wanted to be a Hollywood player, as you know, you read the book. Right. In my well, you, I mean, it's interesting because like your first adventure into Hollywood is like at a hotel, that Holiday Inn on, uh, I don't know right what time. street. Yeah. So I've driven by there all the time. I mean, that's right in the mic, right in the middle of Hollywood. Okay. Highland, I, right? I think it's on Highland, right? Highland. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 I know, and I felt horribly ill and I had the most miserable time of my life. That was my trip to Hollywood. And, you know, I could have I read the signs there, but I didn't, of course. I just thought it was... But you've, had, you've definitely had some uh, relationships with Hollywood figures and, uh, you know, almost, I mean, according your book, you almost broke, you know, somebody got fired who was interested in your work. And you tell that yeah. interesting story about meeting Billy Whitelaw. I thought that yeah. was pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to me. I mean, how how close I got really to the periphery, or, on, or even on the inside of the periphery of Hollywood. I guess you could say I got just on the inside in a certain sense. Like the connections I had were enough. You would, I think, if you if you combine, and I say this in the book, I think you combine my talent. I'm not saying it was enormous, but sufficient talent. My absolute commitment, definitely, that was under, you know, went on for decades, trying, trying, trying everything with my connections. There seems to be no reason why I wouldn't have made it, except unless you consider the fourth element, which is you've got to have the right attitude. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't willing to sell my soul, figuratively speaking. Uh, And I signaled that, I think, I mean, looking back, like, what was it? What was it that kept preventing me from having success? Well, at every level, I was like, I don't want to bullshit. Essentially, that was it. You know, I'll do anything to get success in Hollywood, but I won't bullshit. Because if I bullshit, I'll feel dirty myself. I'll just feel like an asshole. And I'm not saying I never did bullshit. I'm not saying that because we do it unconsciously. But I, I had that deep aversion to bullshitting to the point. I had that conversation with Lorenzo de Bonaventura, he was a Hollywood, you know, he produced The Matrix, high-level Hollywood guy, makes shitty movies. But, um, and I said to him, I'm sorry, I'm giving the Hollywood pitch now, aren't I? And he's, and he's like, well, there's nothing wrong with the Hollywood pitch. So, he's, so I'd kind of shown my hand. I was like, you know, whatever happens, Lorenzo, I'm not going to be a Hollywood player. I'm not going to become an asshole like you. It's essentially what I was saying, passive-aggressive, right? But I was totally, I wasn't aware it was that I was divided. Like I really wanted this holy grail of Hollywood success, but you know, deep inside me, I knew it was a big fat shiny sham. So at every pass where I was like, well, I have to pretend that I believe something I don't believe. I can't do that. I can't signal that I'm willing to go against my, I could say moral sense even although it never got to that level. Well, I suppose it did if you bullshit is, is immoral, you could say. But in any event, yeah, I just, 
obviously I wasn't built for it. But don't you think that all those guys, I mean, having integrity in Hollywood is like a terrible thing. You like artistic integrity and things like that is a negative. Exactly. Um, So you can just see, you have to, I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even call it compromise. You just give up your, and you just write what people want. I think Joe Esther has said something to that effect. I mean, he wrote all kinds of like, was it like soft core porn type movies and stuff like that, and then left? I think Esther has was totally disillusioned. Well, I think I think that's a that's an interesting point because, of course, the artists that we admire in Hollywood, we presume they have like Francis Ford Coppola or Scorsese or someone. We presume they have artistic integrity because they made some really good movies and they clearly believed in them. But at the same time, as you're pointing out. I don't think it's possible to really make it in Hollywood if you have so much integrity that you couldn't, you wouldn't be willing to, you know, kill your own mother effectively. I don't mean literally, but in the sense that if you really loved what you were doing so much that you couldn't bear to just piss all over it to get the break you needed, you wouldn't get the break. You have to actually be willing to say, fuck the art. I'm going to do what it takes to make it and then I can do the art that I want to do. And that that's actually a deeply inconsistent, you see, because if you can really say, fuck the art, I'll do what it takes to make, uh, make it and then I'll do the art, then you don't really have your commitment to the art. It's kind of a fake in some way. That's what I think now. I mean, it's just occurring to me now because I couldn't do that. Like the, for me being creative, there's so much love and you know, filmmakers do talk about this. It's like dying when they see and they have a movie taken away and destroyed. And, and that's a very common story too. I mean, a very common story. story. It's probably even like a rite of passage or something. Yeah. Like you've got to survive that. <laughs> right. I mean, like sacrifice. No. Right. I mean, these. I mean, these. These guys go. What you don't see behind the scenes is probably really traumatic. Like you hear all these stories, like they're that people are watching the daily stills and at a certain point, the producer's like, Nope, this isn't working. You're fired. And uh, if it's in the contract, these people are in real trouble. But uh, yeah, I mean, you cover so much in this book. There's so much information. Can you tell your Billy Whitelaw story for people who don't know? She was the nanny for the, uh, for Damien Omen, right? The Omen. Yeah. Well, that's how I knew her, but actually she was, uh, Samuel Beckett's muse like he wrote his plays for her and you know she performed all his uh, his plays uh, all of them but anyway she's very well known in the theatre much more so than in the movie world but to me she was just you know, Damien's nanny in The Omen um, and she she lived in this period that I cover in 16 Maps of Hell in 2007 when I moved back to London to Hampstead she was also living in Hampstead and she had befriended my mother who's was a she my mother kind of met a lot of celebrities just because she would go to theater performances a lot and I don't know and she had a very natural way of celebrities she didn't she didn't kind of suck up to them she was just treating them very naturally and so she she was quite effective in getting to know celebrities and uh anyway so she made friends with Billy Whitelaw and um and so I got to know Billy Whitelaw just uh, you know, because I was in the same neighborhood and I visited her from time to time. I even baked her bread a couple of times and she didn't like the bread actually, it was too spicy. And uh, 
I got really embroiled in this war between her and my mother. Um, it was the War of the Grannies, they call it. They were the same age. And I discovered at the time that Billy Whitelaw, and I think it had to do with her being an ex-somebody. You know, she, she had been a real somebody, and now she was an old lady living alone, and partly because she was so impossible. You know, even her family stayed away from her. Um, that she created these dramas. It was like she was a stage director, and she cast my mother and me in one of her dramas. She was probably doing it with everyone who got close enough. And she essentially, I mean, we see this sort of technique in movies and TV shows, I think. She would um, uh, take whatever you said and she would twist it around and turn it into something, you know, a subtle variation on the truth. And and then she would repeat it to the other person. And then she'd create this kind of Chinese whispers factory in which, um, as, you know, the, the smallest little thing turned into this psychodrama and uh, what it was with me personally was that I had, she knew a film director called Des Davies who did Clash of the Titles, Titans uh, in the 80s. And the girl with green hair, I think it was called, in the 60s. So he was a minor league uh, British filmmaker. But, you know, one of that, the new uh, British cinema in the 60s. And uh, he was still around. And so she because uh, she knew him, she invited me and suggested I send him my script about Sam Peckinpah, and I did. And he he replied in a letter. It was a very good script, and he gave me some suggestions. And I wrote back to him and uh, said that I was... Uh, uh, well, I can't remember what I said. I just said, thank you. That's, you know, that's great. And um, But then a bit later... Uh, Billy, I told Billy because she'd also been trying to get me a deal or trying to get me to contact this very small publisher in London. Uh, I'd, and I'd looked at it and it was so small and it was so fringe that it wasn't a suitable publisher for me. So I just said, well, you know, I'm not really bothered about getting published now because I've been published in the past and it hasn't really made much difference. So I, I think I'm going to forget about it. She turned that into the fact that I'd given up writing and that she had gone to all this trouble to get me in touch with Des Davies and I'd sent him my script and he'd gone to all the trouble of reading it and and now I was just pissing all over it by saying I wasn't going to bother writing anymore. And so she came up with this whole story that I had done this thing and that she had spoken to Des and he was absolutely furious because of this. And so suddenly I was in the middle of this real drama and wondering what was going on. And she got my mother pulled into it and she was telling my mother that my mother needed to take me in hand because I was irresponsible and this, that and the other. And, uh, you know, I, I, in the end, I reality checked. I, I contacted Des and left a message and he knew nothing about it. Like Billy Whitelaw had just made all this up in her own head. She made up the fact that I was giving up writing. She made up the fact that Des Davies was angry. She made up the fact that I was just rejecting all her help. You know, it's true. I wasn't really that grateful because it wasn't that helpful. But the whole thing, anyway, got to such a point that my mother had to screen her calls. And I just said, that's it. I'm never going to have anything to do with Billy Whitelaw again. It was incredible how much stress she generated. And as far as I could see, it, it had to do with um, her 
sort of singling me out as somebody who was potentially a player and wanting to see if she still had influence and power to help me in the industry. Really low-level stuff, right? But still, beginning of it could have been in her mind. Uh, and then me not not giving the right cues, the right gratitude, the right commitment, not signaling in the right way. And so her totally turning on me like this, saying, okay, you're not worthy of this. You get out, get thee behind me. So it's kind of like a mini, like a microcosm or something. I right, think. yeah. Like the weird, out the weird Hollywood dynamics. Yeah, but it also showed, like, to me, it was like, this person is like like their character they're playing in The Omen, you know, like meddling yeah. and don't get involved and hidden Psychological threats. Yeah, psychological stuff. Yeah. People against each other. And you can see that some of these players in Hollywood are clearly playing themselves. I would take, say Spacey for sure always plays kind of his own creepy self. But uh, why why did you get involved with or interested in Sam Peckinpah? Um, I I don't quite know what the uh, genesis of that fascination was, but um, it just happened, you know, over a period of time organically. Something about particularly the Wild Bunch. Um, I think it was to do actually what we're talking about here that Sam Peckinpah was this you know creative artistic type who was uh, so frustrated and blocked and thwarted by the industry that he he became well he self-destructed actually i mean he hated hollywood he hated he himself said that there were dozens of people in hollywood he would like to kill yeah. uh, he was constantly fighting with the producers and the studios and constantly bad mouthing and he took all that rage uh, he turned inward on himself. He, he drank himself to death um, and cocaine. He became totally paranoid by the end. He was convinced he was under surveillance. Maybe he was. I don't know. You know, Maybe he probably he was aware of some of the stuff in Hollywood. Although if anyone would have talked about it, you'd think it, I would have thought it would have been Peckinpah. So I don't know. He was a very but, hard liver too. I mean, like a person who drank a lot. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, He's actually kind of an na- interesting guy, a native-born Californian, if I remember correctly. Fresno. Fresno, yeah. yeah. He was like There's... a real, he was like a, one of these guys out of the wild bunch. His, his relatives really were kind of like pioneers. Yeah, uh, Peckinpah Mountain is in California. That's named after yeah. us. Really fascinating That's character, right. yeah. Did you ever see, what was the what was the spy movie that he made that was... Uh, at the end, the Osterman. Yeah, the Killers, the Killers or whatever. Right. Not the Osterman. Killer, Killer Elite. Killer Elite, yeah. People have told me it's a really good kind of conspiracy movie. I have to watch it again. It's been a while. It's not a great movie. Uh, I mean, he really lost, you can see in his career, you know, by watching the movies, you can see as he's falling apart, even in single movies, you can see from scene to scene, you know, this is him getting drunker and drunker. Uh, or you can compare, okay, he was sober when he shot that scene. He was obviously pissed out of his head when he shot that. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, for example. Some really good scenes in that, and then there's just absolute hopeless scenes. Uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, right? He's just getting less and less cognitively functional because of his drinking and because he was constantly being blocked and thwarted because he wanted to make movies in Hollywood. And he was a character who simply didn't, he wouldn't bend over and, you know, take strong. Well, yeah. 
Well, he didn't. He had too much integrity, probably. But he goes back to that theme. He didn't sell out. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he kind of did sell out in the end. He made yeah. Convoy, but he was that was. Right. I remember was Convoy actually. He had he had this penchant for dramatic endings. If you remember Convoy, it was like there was one truck coming out of the distance, and then three, and then five. It's pretty funny. It's a funny movie. Yeah. But uh, we're at basically 90 minutes, uh, Jason. Is there anything that I missed? Anything you would like to add? Anything, uh, you know, can you tell the listener where they can find your book, how to obtain a copy of this excellent work? Uh, well, you gave the info, the website, societyculture.com. Uh, it's, a, you know, any page there in the sidebar, I have the option to, well, pre-order now as we're speaking, but by uh, anyway, by the end of October, anyway, it will actually be out. There's, it's a limited run. Uh, I'm not sure how many. There's going to be 100 hardback, and I think between two and 300 paperback. There'll probably be a second edition, but I can't guarantee it. So, uh, yeah, I would suggest people, if they're interested, that they pre-order it. Uh, it's a 600-page book. Um, it's well my attempt to cure myself of the Hollywood uh, virus to extract it from my system I don't know how successful it's been yet but it's a long process a long process you know when you're when you're when you're born and bred in a culture and it shapes the way your bones are formed internally it's very hard to extract this this these toxins but um, I've, I've heard that it's helpful in that Regard. It was definitely helpful for me because you kind of see what the dynamic is and, and about how the mythologizing and stuff, I think you really kind of dispelled that, disenthralled that too. So very work, very well done. Congratulations again. The title of the book is 16 Maps of Hell, The Unraveling of Hollywood Superculture with a Rough Draft of the Exit, published October 31st, 2020. Jason Horsley, H-O-R-S-L-E-Y. He also has a podcast, an excellent podcast, you can check that out too. I think it's under Autoculture or Horsley. You should be able to find that on it's iTunes. The Liminalist. That's right. The Liminalist. Thank you. So, and then his website is www.auticulture.com. Jason Horsley. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bill.